Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we read verses 14 through 16. Hear now the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, without your spirit, we would read your word and see only ideas. Help your word to be more than that to us today. Let your word be to us life, salvation, heart change, joy, fullness, delight, words of truth. Make us open, eager, and ready to be instructed and corrected and whatever else our souls may need this morning. Minister to us by your words so that we see Jesus and so that we rejoice in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to today's text, I I want to remind you of the context of what we've been looking at and what Paul has been doing so far in this letter. You have young Timothy ministering in a situation where error is a present and pressing issue. Uh, It's a situation in which he has constructive work to do and he has defensive work to do. Uh, earlier in First Timothy, we use the example of the Israelites. You may remember we talked about the Israelites in Nehemiah, how they're building the, the, the city up, but they're also laboring with the sword in the other hand or on their waist so that they can be ready to defend the city when necessary. So they're, they're doing constructive work and they're doing defensive work. And Paul is equipping Timothy here for both of those tasks as well. He's preparing him for exactly that. He's been working to help Timothy promote unity in the church. How's he doing that? Well, one of the ways that he's done that, and we've seen this the last few weeks, is that he carefully explains the role of the elders and deacons in the church, their qualifications, by laying out the roles of men and women in the church, how they complement one another, but they also don't overlap over each other. There are responsibilities men in the church have that women don't have, and that women in the church have but the men don't have. Um, He talked about the importance of godliness, keeping the unity of the church strong. And so today's passage, as we come to it, it it begins with Paul's hope that he can come to Timothy soon. He says, I want to be there in person. He's, He's basically saying, right now, I can't be there, and so my written words will need to be enough. And he's saying, I hope I can give you something here, something to help this church in Ephesus as you're leading them along the, Christian, the path of the Christian life. And then he says something uh, that he says, we confess. He makes a statement that, that seems to be apparently a, a confession of some sort, something that the church says, something the church has said or, or did say, some kind of saying that Timothy 
must be familiar with, the way that Paul introduces it. And he calls this confession the mystery of godliness. And I actually want us to fixate on this confession that he makes. It's only a few lines. It's very densely packed. Um, he, he, he gives this confession. And he, he knows one thing. And he zeroes in on it. Because remember, what's the context here? Survival for this church. Strength for this church. Unity for this church. For this church to, to bear fruit, for this church to be a blessing, the godliness of the Christian life needs to be evident in this church. And, and that can't happen if they are looking within themselves. And so what does Paul do? He speaks about this mystery of godliness. And as he's doing that, what does he do? He zeroes in 100% on the person of Jesus. Essentially, what he's saying is this church needs to be godly, and for this church to be godly, Jesus needs to be at the center. You need to, as a church, be focused, laser-focused on Jesus. And so to, to make this case, in the process, he's giving us this amazing confession. And this confession here is all about Jesus. It's, it's only a few lines. It's so simple. You might even be tempted to think that, wow, he just kind of stops what he's doing to talk about Jesus. And, and it's this jam-packed confession with these dense ideas about the person of Christ. And, and each line is rich. But before we go into the confession that, that Paul gives here, I want to talk about this word mystery because the word mystery is right here. He says, this is the mystery of godliness. I think one of the, one of the most powerful things I learned early on as a Christian was the importance of reading the scripture and not reading it big, like you're just looking at the passage and not thinking much about what the specifics of the passage are. The, the preachers that I started listening to early on, one of the things they taught me was you want to read the details. The details matter. Uh, the specifics matter. The meaning of specific words matter. I think one of the first times that really struck me was when I was listening to R.C. Sproul talk about the meaning of the word holy. And before he said holy, before he explained what holy meant, I just thought it was a religious word that meant that something was pure. I mean, I, I, that was basically my general thought. I, I didn't think much more about it. And then as he talks, and uh, you have to read Sproul's book if you want to really get the, the full answer because that will take us far afield. But as I, as I learned more about what holiness meant, suddenly this word came alive to me. And I understood God better and I understood myself better as this low creature. And there are a lot of words like that in scripture that we pass over, we go past, we don't think much about it. And I suspect that the word mystery is one of those words for us. We just go past it. We say, look, I, I don't know what the mystery here is. I'm just going to keep going. Um, mystery is one of those words. Paul uses this word mystery here. What is he, just, what is he using it for? How's he using it? He's using it as a summary of the life and work of Jesus. He's saying the life and work of Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Well, what does the mystery mean? You know, you hear that word, you think you understand. It's Maybe you think, I know what a mystery is. A mystery is something that's hard to understand, right? That's probably the way most of us instinctively read the word when we hear it. But when Paul uses that word in his writings, one of the things you see is you find it all over in Paul's uh, texts. And the way Paul uses this word is not just something that's hard to understand. That's not actually what he says. What he uses the word for is something that was hidden before, 
that was there, but it was obscured. It was hard for us to understand, but it was there the whole time. It's not like something that was covered up. It's just something that we didn't see, and now it's been revealed. And, and so when he, when he says that Jesus is the mystery of godliness, he's saying that the coming of Jesus casts light on dark shadows that were there in the Old Testament. Things that perhaps we, we, we could have seen had we looked closely and known what we were looking for. You know, this side of the cross, we go back, we read the Old Testament, and suddenly it comes alive in a way that for a Jewish person prior to the time of Jesus, it was obscured. It was hard to understand. And so, in a surface level, in a surface level sense, nothing here is mysterious, you know, the Messiah was spoken of in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you were a careful, observant student of Scripture, you would have seen that the Messiah was being spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. Um, you would see that he was going to bear the sin of Israel. We see it now looking back in the text. And yet Paul tells us that something mysterious was uncovered. Something mysterious was revealed in, in Christ. And so as we are reading this passage today, as we're reading this confession of Jesus, one sort of subtext that I want us to carry with us as we're going along is, what is it that was mysterious before that Jesus in his coming made unmysterious? What are things that we didn't see that we probably ought to have seen if we had had eyes to see and ears to hear? What is new with Jesus that without his coming we wouldn't have known? And so as we talk about the three primary sections of this confession today, I've broken this confession into three pieces so that we can more easily talk about it. I want us to keep touching on this idea of mystery. How does Jesus expose new things that were hidden before and are now revealed? Well, here are the three sections. I hope it's fair the way that I've decided to break this apart. Um, we're going to look at it in three parts. Christ's work accomplished. That's part one. In point two, it's Christ's work announced. And then finally, in point three, we'll see Christ's work acknowledged. Uh, what we have here before us, again, I, I'm using the word dense. There's, there's a lot here. And whenever you get a text like this, it's really dense. One of the things that I feel as a preacher is, wow, I feel like I can't give any of these sections the sort of attention they deserve because you want to give all the, the sections at least some attention. And so we are going to be getting sort of a fly-by look at Jesus and his work here this morning. Um, first, uh, Paul says we can find godliness in Christ's work accomplished. Um, he focuses on this in the first part of the confession where he says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Um, you could summarize these two lines like this. Paul is talking about the incarnation of Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the arrival of Christ, and then he's talking about him rising again. Um, the first line talks about the incarnation, right? It says, he was manifested in the flesh. When you're talking about the word manifested, you're talking about something being revealed or disclosed, but you're also talking about something appearing, something coming, uh, something uh, being here physically even. And, and these are two different ideas, but when it comes to Jesus, they aren't in conflict. They actually uh, uh, are very... Uh, accommodating to each other. Uh, I suspect Paul is, is saying that when Jesus physically lived among us, he was the coming of God and he was the revelation of God. So there's almost this double meaning in what he's talking about here. He is here physically incarnate 
and he is here revealing manifest. And, um, he says this in another place. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So, so it's both and. You're, you're, God's being revealed, and I'm physically here. Um, there's also a nod here to the pre-existence of Jesus. He's, he is very God of very God. We confess this when we do the Nicene Creed every other week. He, he existed before he was incarnate. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus was pre-existent. Um, he was revealed in the flesh. He appeared in flesh, whereas before he didn't appear in the flesh. He became something that he wasn't before. He, he became revealed when he was unseen before. So I want you, I think Paul wants us to appreciate this. Without the incarnation, not only is there no mystery, there is no godliness. Without the incarnation, none of that. We, we have none of that for any of us. And that's because you and I are sinners by nature. And so the, the truth about us is that unless God intervenes in human history, unless he comes down, unless he does something, unless he acts on our behalf, there's no hope of us being redeemed. There's no hope of us being transformed. The incarnation, Christ being manifest in the flesh, that is the hope of salvation. It's the thing that Paul, in, in the very beginning of this confession here, is hanging all of this on. But then Paul keeps going, right? This is, this is him giving his summary of the faith. And so he doesn't just stop at the incarnation. He, the second place, he speaks of Jesus being vindicated by the Spirit. By the way, a lot of this confession uses language we're not familiar with. We wonder, what does it mean for him to be vindicated by the Spirit? I think it's a challenging phrase for, for a lot of us. Um, but it's really not as tricky as it seems. Paul in Romans chapter 8, is very comfortable speaking of the Spirit as the agent of Jesus' resurrection. How was Jesus raised up? Paul would answer, you know, we might like to say, well, God just raised him up. We might want to put it that way. Uh, Peter says God raised him up in Acts chapter 2, for example. So it's not wrong to say God raised him up. But when you're reading Romans 8, Paul gets even more specific. He actually tells you the person of the Godhead who raised him. He says in Romans 8, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So the, the Holy Spirit is the personal agent of the resurrection. The Spirit himself raised Jesus up. And, and we know that the resurrection was a vindication of Jesus. It was God's way of, of testifying that this man was not a sinner. You know, the accusations that were laid upon Jesus, this man is a sinner. They look at him, they look him in the face, they say, we know you're a sinner and you were born of a sinful woman, right? They look at him and they, they, they heap uh, accusations upon him, none of which they can actually substantiate. And then what happens when Jesus is raised up? It's God testifying that he was who he said he was, that he truly was God in human flesh. See, the resurrection is this, it's this triumphant declaration by God that Jesus is innocent, that Jesus is good, that Jesus truly was who he said he was, which is God himself. So the resurrection is this vindication. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's vindicated by the spirit. It's a reference to the resurrection. How does this promote godliness in us, though? Because remember, that's sort of what he's bringing all of these things to us before. Well, in Romans 8, Paul actually gives an application 
of the Spirit raising Jesus up. He actually says something for you and I that the resurrection means. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So he gives a direct application to you and me, to everybody who places their faith in Jesus. He says, God did this for Jesus, and he will do that for you. He says, Jesus, because he was vindicated by the Spirit, and because we're united to Jesus by faith, we're going to be vindicated by the Spirit when we are raised up. See, the world looks at us, and they say, God is real. He hasn't saved them. They can't be forgiven. Right? Sins can't be forgiven. Sins are too bad. We're in a very unforgiving age. I think forgiveness is the harder thing for people today to actually believe in. They look at us and they say they can't be forgiven. Everything they've done is too rotten. And then what happens? Well, we have the resurrection. And what happens? All of God's people are raised up and you have this open declaration for all the world to see that we really did belong to Jesus and we really do belong to Jesus. And all of those things, all those truths we've been confessing all this time were really true. See, Jesus' resurrection is his vindication and our resurrection will be our vindication. And Paul says this assurance It does something to us. It changes the way we live. It it gives us this assurance. It gives us this ability to live in this world and take what we might think of as, as risks. It allows us to step out in faith because we know that if something dangerous happens to us, if something even ends our lives, Jesus says, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body. Don't be afraid, he says. Because I'll raise your body up one day. And so we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. Uh, The resurrection enables us to live in godliness. It it enables us to live godly lives right now. It it enables us to to do things that the rest of the world cower when they think of it. Something about that resurrection enables that mystery of godliness to come alive. And, and, he, and Paul is saying, because this is true of Jesus, because Jesus was raised up, because Jesus was, was, uh, was vindicated by the Spirit, we will be raised up and we will walk in resurrected bodies one day. Has that truth landed upon you? Do you live as somebody who will be raised up one day? Or do you live your life as if this is your only chance, this is your only body, This is your only moment. How does this relate to the mystery? You know, we talked, I I talked again about the fact that as we're reading this, he's talking about this as a mystery. How is the, the incarnation and the resurrection a mystery? What does Jesus show us that was hidden before? What does Jesus show us that was hidden before and now we can see it? Now it's revealed. Well, you know, if you read the Old Testament, you see these promises of a Messiah, and the people expected a Messiah. So that's not what was hidden. People had this hope that some Savior was going to come, that a, that a ruler was going to come. They had these worldly ideas of what that Savior would be. They were hoping for a political deliverer. Um, you see this hope in the text that a, a Savior would come, that he would bear our sins. You even see it in Isaiah 53. This idea that a sin bearer would come, that he'd be punished in our place. Uh, In the text, you see hints at his divinity, but all of these things are veiled enough 
that the reader was left scratching their head a bit as to how they all fit together. As we look back now that Christ's light has shone upon the text, in retrospect, those texts seem to obviously be speaking of Jesus' divinity. And yet before Jesus came, it would have been really hard to pinpoint Jesus' deity. With the coming of Jesus, those vague hints become definitive promises. You even see hints at the resurrection, right? Isaiah says that after the suffering servant gets put to death, what would he do? He would see and be satisfied after he died. The resurrection is there, but again, we realize it now, but it's veiled, it's implied, it's not as explicit. And then with the incarnation, what happens? Well, we realize in a way that, that wasn't clear before that the Messiah is God himself. Not just an agent of God, not just a messenger of God, but actually God. And we realize that the Messiah himself would be the one to bring the resurrection to reality. So the mystery is not just that God would raise up the Messiah one day, but that he would raise up in Christ, in himself, the Messiah, who is God. That is the truth that was hidden before. It was there, but with Christ, now it's seen. He's not just going to send a messenger. He himself is going to come. And that's what the incarnation shows us that we didn't know before. It's the mystery of godliness, Paul calls it. Second, this morning Paul says we can find godliness in Christ's work announced. When when Paul gives expression to Christ's work made known, he makes two statements. You can see it here if you just keep letting your eyes move down in the confession. He says that Jesus was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. By the way, every line of this uh, confession, while at once beautiful and wonderful, is also just tricky enough that we have to think a little bit about it, right? More than we might normally. Um, First, he says that he was seen by angels. What are angels? They're heavenly messengers of God. They speak for God. Um, If there is someone to send, he will send them. But he's not opposed to sending his own heavenly agents. We see this in Scripture. Um, but still, what, is, what does it mean that Jesus was seen by angels? Why does, why does Paul say this? Well, if I were writing this confession that Paul is quoting, I, I probably wouldn't include a line about angels, if, if I'm honest. I have my own uh, stuff that I, I would say, and, and this isn't my instinct to include a passage about angels. Uh, it's a phrase that I find myself surprised by. Why, why include it? Well, why include it? For starters, I, it's literally true, right? 1 Peter 1.12 talks about angelic observers and their interest in the events of salvation. Uh, he talks about how even angels are interested in these things that God is doing. Uh, angels are also frequent in the New Testament. If I asked you how many times do angels appear in the New Testament, you might say a dozen. They are spoken of 181 times in the New Testament. Um, angels sing of his birth. They proclaim his arrival in the book of Luke. Angels minister to Jesus in his temptation. They are there in the garden in Luke 22, giving him strength so that he can approach the cross. They're in the garden after the resurrection as witnesses to his being raised. There's there's a heavenly witness presiding over all of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The angels are there at every step. If you get right down to it, I think seen by angels is contrasted with the next thing he says, which is, Proclaimed among the nations, right? He's, he's being holistic here. He's, he's talking about heaven and earth. 
I think he's basically saying Jesus' Jesus's life, death, and resurrection were witnessed by heaven and witnessed on earth. Creation above and creation below all bear witness to the Savior that he is God's Messiah. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying that, that there is no doubt what has happened because God himself and his messengers and humanity have seen this thing. But then Paul says that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. So Paul is acknowledging, he's acknowledging the need for earthly messengers to, to spread the gospel. You know, if you don't have preachers, if you don't have uh, missionaries, if you have no one to bring the good news, then the good news can't be preached in the first place. There's no miracle of the new birth if there's no one to tell about the miracle of the new birth, if there's no one to tell Jesus about or to tell anyone about Jesus. And Paul says, Paul says it this way in another place in Romans 10. I keep quoting Romans this morning. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I think something in us militates against the idea that a first century person could say that Christ had been proclaimed among the nations. Here we are maybe 15, maybe 20 years after the resurrection and Paul is willing to actually say Jesus has been proclaimed among the nations. He's got a lot of nerve. Doesn't he know how big the globe is? Doesn't he know how many parts of the world still have to hear about Jesus? And I think that what we do is we hear statements like this in Scripture about Jesus being proclaimed to all the nations. And we think in terms of geographic lines. We think in terms of national borders. We think, well, until a missionary has set foot across all the international lines, then we can't say that Jesus has been proclaimed among the nations. And maybe we just don't naturally think about this very well. In Colossians 1.6, Paul celebrates the gospel. He says, indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Again, Paul, do you have the nerve? Someone needs to put, give this man a map, right? Someone needs to give him a, a picture of the world so he can really see what's going on. He has no idea. The gospel's not proclaimed throughout the world, and yet he says it is. Then later in Colossians 1.23, he talks to the Colossians. He says, he, he speaks of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's, he's doing it again. He, he thinks the gospel's gone out to the whole world. What is he talking about? Uh, it's a surprising way for us to talk. It's a surprising way for Paul to talk. I think we resist it. Right, first century, the gospel gets preached. It spreads as far as Egypt, Ethiopia, who knows how far east. Uh, it goes west, it goes into France, it goes into Spain, uh, it goes into Asia Minor. You know, if you were drawing a map, you'd have this uh, sort of round bubble that's sort of spreading out from Jerusalem on each side. But depending on how strenuous and literal you are, you might say, no, Jesus hasn't been proclaimed among the nations by this point. Yet the New Testament authors differ. What happened? They know the world is bigger than the world that Rome occupies. And yet the gospel has been proclaimed in the world. What, what, what do they mean? They mean this. By this point, it had burst the bounds of Israel. It had escaped the confines of just the Jewish people. It had emerged into the whole world. Even in Acts chapter 2, you have people from all these different nations, all of them in Jerusalem, hearing the gospel and then going back to their home nations and sharing the word with people. 
So it had burst the banks of Israel and was spilling over into the nations. There is, there is more beauty and success of the gospel happening in the world than we sometimes see or understand. Especially if you think in such a Western-centered way, you just think, well, I don't see a lot of people coming to Christ. Uh, I don't see a lot of people in the United States. It feels like unbelief is more uh, prevalent than ever. And yet again, we have such a focused obsession with our own moment here in the West, and we don't think about the fact that the gospel is exploding in Africa, that it's exploding in Asia, that there is an underground church in China that puts us to shame here. We, we forget, we just forget, and we become pessimists, and we may even become a little bit sad the way that we think about the gospel, right? The, the gospel has burst the bounds of one specific ethnic group. It's gone out into all creation. This is the point of Stephen's sermon that got him killed was him saying, the whole world's not going to come into this temple anymore. This temple is not the center of creation. Instead, Jesus is the center of creation now. He's the one that everyone is coming into. It got him killed. We need to think bigger, and we need to see bigger. We need to think more grand in terms of God and his work in the world. I think Western Christians have a sadness to them. Western Christians have, have a, a sadness because as a church we need to put away defeatism. Why do we act so defeated when the scripture says that we're more than conquerors? We need to put away the temptation to feel sorry for ourselves. That is not becoming of Christians. We are victorious people because we serve a victorious God. We worship a risen and glorious and victorious Savior whom death could not hold. Have you gotten so caught up in the world that you have forgotten? There is no room for pity parties in the new creation, which we are part of in Christ. And so what does Paul do? He draws our eyes to Jesus and away from ourselves. And again, part of that mystery of all of this is just how central the Messiah was going to be to the, go to the gospel. The, the message wasn't just going to be that he was going to be a messenger of salvation. It was wilder than that. He was the message of salvation. That when the Messiah came, he was going to be the one that says, all the world, look to me. Raise me up. And everyone set their eyes on me. That's the mystery. Because before, people thought the Messiah would be a messenger. They didn't see it before, but in Jesus, it's now revealed that the Messiah would come preaching himself as the object of faith. And that his gospel will be witnessed by heaven and earth. Third, this morning, Paul tells us that godliness can be found in Christ's work acknowledged. Um, you see this here. He mentions the ascension. He says Jesus was taken up in glory, right? Even, even in the ascension of Jesus, this extraordinary moment of victory, there's meant to be this element of, of public testimony. It's, it's hard to imagine someone being lift up and lifted up into the sky and no one noticing. Um, if, you, if David Blaine tried pulling something like that off in downtown Los Angeles or wherever, wherever he, it is that he lives, you know you'd have every bold buddy pulling out their smartphones and taking notice. 
um, there's this very, very public aspect to it. It's a, a public acknowledgement in conjunction with his resurrection, which is itself sufficient to state who Jesus is. It's like the ascension is the cherry on top. It's this public way for everybody to see that the Lord Jesus wasn't just, he wasn't a mere mortal. He was different in the eyes of the Father. He was taken up in glory in a way that was public, in a way that was visible, in a way that was undeniable. So in the ascension, what's happening? Jesus is being, being acknowledged by the disciples. He's being acknowledged by other witnesses. And especially, he's being acknowledged by the Father himself. The ascension of Jesus is crucial to godliness. Uh, I and a group of pastors have been reading a whole book dedicated to discussing the ascension and the implication of the ascension. And one of the things that I never realized was just how important Jesus' current heavenly reign really is for our Christian lives right now. The fact that he is still on the throne. And again, this goes back to that victorious aspect of what I was talking about. Jesus is on the throne right now. He's not waiting to get on the throne. He's not waiting for the right person to be in office so that he can then be on the throne. He's not, he's not putting his hope there. That's not, even where, that's not even where his focus is. Instead, he looks at men and women, boys and girls, and he says, I'm changing hearts. I'm doing it every day, and I will do it for you as well. Um, the ascension is crucial to godliness. Jesus told his disciples it was better for him to go. And that, 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 that violates my own instinct because if Jesus were to uh, speak to me and say, Adam, I'll give you anything right now that you could possibly want, I think very high on my list would be, please physically come here right now. I think I would say, I, I want you physically here. Something about your close closeness would make me feel secure having him standing here and then I could just follow him from place to place and, and never leave him there's something inside of us that says that that would be better and yet Jesus says in John 16:7 it is to your advantage that I go away it's just exactly the opposite of what I think he says it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that incredible? This is the mystery of godliness. You can't have a godly life without Jesus ascending into heaven and seated at the Father's right hand so that he would send the Spirit to live in you. You can't live the godly life. You can't live the Christian life. Why? Because if Jesus hasn't ascended, then he doesn't send the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, then all of your life is going to be running on the hamster wheel of works, trying to please God, trying to be better, trying to be good, all without the help of God's Holy Spirit. None of these things which you can do on your own. And in fact, you can never be good enough. You need the ascension. Because Jesus has been taken up in glory, what does he do? He sends his spirit, not just to accompany you, not just to watch you, not just to observe your life, not just to direct you, but to dwell in you, to abide in you, to live with you. This is something better than just someone standing right next to you and telling you all the things that you need to know. He says, I'm going to send my spirit within your heart. I'm going to give you something that you would be incapable of achieving apart from me. So you want the ascension. You, you should be glad that Jesus has ascended. 
That's exactly what he says here at the end. He was taken up in glory. It's the mystery of godliness. Paul also says that the mystery of godliness is that Jesus was believed on in the world. You see that line here right before this. And actually, the mystery of godliness is that he continues to be believed on in the world. Uh, remember, remember what Paul is doing here. He's communicating to Timothy these key pillars of salvation, right? These things that are necessary in order for someone to know God, for someone to know salvation. He's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the very public proclamation and vindication of Jesus and his being raised up into heaven, these core tenets of the Christian faith, these things that are all there in our creeds that we say each week. And Paul also included in that this phrase, believed on in the world. If there's something that Timothy needs to remember as a minister that the church in in Ephesus needs to hear, it's the reality that there is no life, there is no salvation, there is no light, there is no rescue from sin apart from believing on Jesus. You know, over and over uh, again, we see this message, you don't get any of these blessings, any of this salvation, any of the good that Jesus has, has earned and achieved if you are not united to him by faith. So many texts. So many texts that give us the imperative to believe. You have Acts chapter 16 where they're with the Philippian jailer and this, this simple jailer, a guy who's not an educated man, this is a guy that knows how to rough people up, right? That's what you hire someone to be a jailer for. And he says, what shall I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus. It doesn't, they, don't, they don't make it more complex. They give this guy the simplest presentation of the gospel that someone could get. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You have that stunning passage that we so often hear. I think we forget how stunning it is. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that... Whosoever believes, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What is the result of believing in Jesus? You don't perish, you live forever. You believe on the Lord Jesus, you don't perish, you live forever, right? There's no salvation if we will not believe in him. And that believing is not an intellectual assent. That belief is faith. It is trust. It is receiving and resting. That's how our confession puts it. It is receiving and resting upon Jesus alone, leaning on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, hoping in Jesus. What's the contrast? Hoping in us, centered on ourselves, eyes on ourselves, thinking about ourselves, hoping in ourselves, hoping in our family, hoping in our good works, hoping in the world around us, hoping in anything, fill in the blank, that isn't Jesus. He says, what does Paul do with this confession? He's centering us on where the hope is. Centered on Jesus, hoping in Jesus, leaning on Jesus. See, Paul Paul wants this for Timothy. He wants this for this church in Ephesus to make Christ central to their hearts and their lives and their church. And, you know, I, I love that Paul does this here. I love that he gives us this confession at this moment in the text. Because what have we been doing the last few weeks? We've been talking about church government, right? We've been talking about polity. Um, all things that are good and important. And I hope you found beauty in those things. But one of the things that you might do, perhaps after three weeks of talking about church leadership, 
you might be tempted to start thinking, man, church leadership is really important, and it is. But never think that it's more important than Jesus himself. What is Paul doing right here? He's setting our eyes on Christ. All this other stuff is true. The elders of the church are necessary. Deacons are necessary. You can't have a proper church without elders. You need someone to proclaim the word. All of this is true. And yet he says, make sure your eyes are on Jesus because that's the work the elders and deacons are all doing. They're making sure that you are setting your eyes on Christ. That's what this confession's here for because you need Jesus more than you need even church officers. Paul wants this for Timothy. He wants this for the church in Ephesus. He wants Christ to be central to their hearts, central to their lives, central to their families. The, the mystery of godliness, he calls it. Do you see the thing that ties all of this stuff here together? It's this, the mystery of godliness is all bound up in Jesus. This whole confession, it's a confession of Jesus. It's a confession of who he is, what he did, what he came to achieve, how it is that we can have those blessings too. It's faith in Jesus. And what this means is that godly people stop gazing at themselves. They stop gazing at their circumstances. It means that we put away this idea that we are somehow a big deal. We aren't. Jesus is the big deal. The blessings of eternal life are only in Christ. They can only be had in Christ by faith. And so here it is. The invitation continues to be held out in all of its beautiful and mysterious simplicity. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your households. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is very easy for us to be caught up in ourselves, to focus on ourselves, to hinge our hope and our happiness on the circumstances. Instead, you set yourself before us. You offer yourself to us. You invite us even now to come and find our rest in you. Would you send your spirit to help Christians to be strengthened in their faith in you? to make you the center of our focus and, and of our hope, to stop looking at ourselves and stop looking at our circumstances and our own deeds to find any sense of peace or rest or satisfaction. And for those who have not yet done so, would you grant them to see your perfection and your power and your glory and your grace, your humble and lowly love of sinners so that they would put down their hope in themselves and place their hope in Jesus for eternal life. It's in Jesus' name that we are even able to pray this morning. Amen.